So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty energy. Solar has gained 17 times the rate of our economy. There are 2.6 million jobs in our country in clean energy. The world's biggest energy agency believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Hi, and welcome to this edition of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm Jeff McMahon, and I'll be your new host for this series. Recently, EPIC co-hosted an event with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs about the disproportionate impact of climate change on the poor and developing countries. It was an engaging event featuring EPIC's Amir Gina, an assistant professor at Chicago's Harris School for Public Policy, and Alice Hill, the senior director for resilience policy for the National Security Council, and now a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. The event was moderated by Karen Weigert, a senior fellow for Global Cities at the Chicago Council. Let's listen to their conversation. Thank you, all of you, and welcome to our conversation tonight. Uh, we're really lucky to have this discussion with the folks who are sitting to my left, and so let's just jump in. Alice, I'd love to start with you. And from the vantage points that you've had in thinking about this issue, both across the globe, but specifically within the US, help ground climate change for us. What does this mean on the ground in the United States? It's always said and should be said that you can't tie any particular event uh, to climate change, although the attribution science is improving rapidly. But 2017 is a wonderful example of what is ahead for us. It's given us certainly, in my opinion, a wake-up call. If you'll think about February of this year in Tulsa, Oklahoma, it hit 99 degrees. Now, I'm sure you all in Chicago know that's not uh, what you're expecting in Oklahoma in the winter. As we moved on, uh, we had extreme uh, drought conditions in the western United States, uh, affecting deeply communities there that rely on uh, forestry, cattle. Uh, our western states uh, were deeply hit. We then uh, moved on to hurricanes, Harvey, Irma, Maria, we are still uh, suffering from those impacts, 55 inches of rain uh, in Houston. And then, uh, of course, Puerto Rico has had very severe impacts. In fact, today I heard that their power was out again. We're more than a month out from the event. Uh, and we are, uh, FEMA is spending $200 million a day on recovery efforts. And then, of course, we had the wildfires in California, devastating uh, to the beloved Napa, Napa Valley. The National Intelligence Council has been concerned about the possibility of back-to-back -back extreme weather events. 
uh, and what that does to a strong economy like ours, a very strong economy, but also globally to other economies that are having similar kinds of impacts. Meanwhile, on our eastern uh, seaboard primarily, somewhat less on the western seaboard, we have relentless sea level rise. So we have sunny day flooding occurring in Norfolk, Virginia, where we have 30 military installations, the largest naval port in the world. Uh, and it has already suffered severe flooding so that it floods just on a plain old sunny day because there are high tides, similarly in Miami. Of course, we haven't even gotten to the Gulf Coast that's losing approximately a football field of land an hour. That's a glimpse of what climate change looks like. As we continue to heat up, which we will, even if we cut our emissions to, to, to zero today, we will continue to heat up. As that heat uh, comes in and the impacts increase, we will um, see that uh, the impacts accelerate and become even more severe. One of the underappreciated risks, but I think it's very appreciated in Chicago, given your history in, I believe it's 1995, extreme heat. That will be one of the real challenges for us in certain areas in the United States because we're going to have more events of extreme heat. Uh, essentially, it's just pushed to the curve to the right. So we will all be attempting to deal with that. Of course, during those events, our ability to generate power, at least as we are currently uh, structure our power systems, is reduced. So that puts more people at greater risk. So I think 2017 gives us a wonderful hint. Uh, I would not anticipate it would look better going forward. Over maybe a year will look better, but over time we will have even more impacts than we experienced this year. It's an extraordinary year. And it puts a, a, a very detailed context around some of the challenges. And it really brings it home to the United States. And Amir, you've done an extraordinary amount of research, but you've also had a great deal of experience working and thinking internationally. What does this look like outside of the borders of the US? So I, I originally started my, my career and my studies looking more on the physical side of climate. And I, in early work in doing that, I realized that the, the, the impacts that it was having on people were were essentially what would, would drive my research forward afterwards. So it was going to places like, like Bangladesh and seeing households that are affected by flooding each year and just seeing their, their adaptive capacity to these types of, of hazards just being strained with each, with each um, successive flood that they experience, with each successive typhoon or, or tropical cyclone that came to, to hit them. Um, and it was very clear in, in looking at that, doing field work, trying to, look, trying to work with farmers or with people in rural villages in, in different parts of South Asia, that these impacts were not hitting everybody equally. Um, and so to me, that's been the, the, the largest or the most dramatic um, expression of climate change that I've seen. There was one story which I think has, has um, pushed me in the direction of the research that I've been doing, where I was, I was working with the Red Cross Red Crescent in, in, in Bangladesh looking at people's adaptive strategies for climate change and doing this in a very, I thought, hard-headed hard scientific way. Um, and in this focus group that we were having, one, at one point somebody mentioned that one of their family members had died in a flood. And I was shocked by this. And my translator said, oh no, well this kind of thing happens all the time. And asked people in this group of maybe 20 or 30 to put up their hands if they had lost someone in the past five years because of some climate-related um, incident, and maybe about 50% of them did. 
And then I heard this story of one woman who, who had to make a choice um, between saving her livestock and her child. She left her child unattended in her home, and the baby subsequently died in, in rising floodwaters. And she had to make that trade-off. And so for me, internationally, this looks like something where the people who are the poorest in the world are ones who are having to make these extremely difficult trade-offs within their life because they just don't have the, the economic ability to, to cope with any of these hazards. When you see footage of climate change or you hear stories, so often Bangladesh is held up as an example and uh, the challenges are beyond the reach of I think what many of the folks in this room may have seen here in the U.S., despite the extraordinary challenges, Alice, that you just framed for us. But Amir, I know you were doing some research that actually does look at the U.S. and quantifying climate change. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how we take these themes that we're hearing about and array them across our country? And what does the data tell us about the impacts? One of the advantages about working on, on the U.S. is that the data is much better than, than things you would get in other countries, and so you can actually perform this type of analysis here in a way you couldn't in many places around the world. Um, that was one of the reasons to, to dive in very deeply into the, into the United States and look at people's health and well-being and economic outcomes. Um, what we find when looking at the, the current relationships to, to weather and climate it's actually quite surprising that even in the US, the richest country in the world, somewhere you'd expect to, be, uh, to have the least vulnerability to these types of, um, to types of exposures, you see that there is big effects on health, as was just mentioned, on labor productivity, on, on agriculture that still persist even today. Um, these are things which will get worse into the future. So in looking at those underlying data, we, we see very strongly non-linear relationships, which I think was, was kind of the surprising thing. So as temperature warms, the effects of increasing temperature gets worse. Um, and so we're in the US, even though very, um, very wealthy and, and in some cases very well able to adapt, um, we're right on the edge in some places of those thresholds where climate change impacts start to get much worse. And so in our research recently, we thought we would find modest effects. We're looking at both the, the benefits and the damages and we're trying to say, you know, the, if there's a heat wave which will harm people, the decrease in cold days will help people's health because you're not exposed to as many health damaging cold days. Um, but we were surprised to see that on net the U.S. economy seems to suffer when looking at a number of different sectors. And not only that, but the pattern is very unequally distributed across, across the country. So a surprising thing to find in the world's richest country and extending that globally can only show that pattern, I think, to a much greater degree. And you even quantified it. You know, degree of warming causes X impact on GDP. Yes, about uh, one degree Celsius, two degrees Fahrenheit, yeah. roughly about 1.2% of GDP loss per year. And then my recollection also is there, there are counties where that number is just much, much higher in the United States today. Yeah. So this was on, on average across the whole country, but then what we would see is that the southern United States, for reasons that I'm talking about, these, these types of thresholds, and almost a perfect storm of impacts, inadvertently using the word storm, but people who are suffering from sea level rise, enhanced um, hurricane activity, and also being very close to these damaging temperature thresholds, there's counties that are losing about 20, 30% of their local incomes per capita. Mm -hmm. um, so some enormous effects, and very unequally distributed across the United States. 
So when you dig into a, a data like that, it's new data in a sense. I mean, it's since you're quantifying what has been seen but hasn't really been put into numerical terms. And I know, Alice, when you started in the Obama administration, you actually started, I think, in the Department of Homeland Security. Yes. But it wasn't about quantifying climate change. It was essentially asking the question, is this an issue for us? President Obama had just signed an executive order requiring all federal agencies to engage in sustainability planning, so cutting emissions of the federal government, plus requiring uh, adaptation planning. And I was the new person at DHS. I had formerly been a judge on the Los Angeles Superior Court. Newly arrived at the Department of Homeland Security, and if you've ever worked in a very large bureaucracy, uh, DHS has 240,000 employees. Uh, I was the new person on the, in the management team, uh, and honestly, no one else wanted to do this assignment, so they said, oh, they looked around the room, give it to her. And uh, to, uh, fortunately for me, I uh, found it a fascinating topic. I could, because I didn't have a deep background in the sciences or really about climate change, I was asked to assemble a task force to answer the question, should DHS, which DHS has FEMA, Coast Guard, TSA, ICE, our customs, they handle our borders, huge security agency, should that agency in 2009 care about climate change? And not cutting emissions, care about the impacts of climate change. So we were able to benefit from the work of uh, the Navy, Task Force Climate Change, as well as uh, other experts in the Department of Defense, NASA, NOAA. We all concluded that we needed to care deeply. And so then we wrote the first adaptation plan for DHS, which called out the various risks to our missions. And one of the very large, obvious risks is the risk to FEMA, which we're already seeing right now. They're very much under a lot of stress, given the uh, succession of impacts that we've just had this year. In the work that you saw, how did this extend to the way the U.S. interacts internationally? So how did this impact when U.S. dollars are going overseas, either in military events or in aid, to places that Amir might be researching outside of our boundaries? So two concerns, uh, primary concerns that, uh, as we're really learning about how the nation can best uh, prepare for climate change impacts, uh, one concern was our own national security and how that would be affected by climate change. That would mean our coastal installations. I mentioned Norfolk, which is suffering from subsidence. The land is sinking, plus sea level rise. Huge investments of the federal government. We have military installations at risk from sea level rise all over the world. And all of those will need some kind of remediation work, or, or virtually all of them. Uh, we have had instances where it simply got too hot in the West for very young, healthy people to train outside uh, because the heats we're experiencing. So we needed to uh, look at those things. We did, when I was in the White House, complete a uh, executive order, President Obama signed it, which required all of our science agencies, our intelligence agencies, and our security agencies to incorporate consideration of climate change impacts in their strategy and planning. Uh, so you have the scientists inform the intelligence agencies, and then the intelligence agencies inform uh, the policymakers. President Trump uh, 
did decide to rescind that order, so there is no such order currently in place. We also did another order that looked at the other side of this, which you were referencing, our development work. So we want to make sure that nations that are of strategic interest to, to us are not uh, rendered even more vulnerable or even unstable and have political, uh, severe, significant political consequences as a result of climate change. If you look at the events in Syria, academics will tell you that a severe drought, at least the worst in a thousand years, uh, led to a massive movement of primarily young men within the country. Many other factors played in. Uh, lots of other things happened, including uh, uh, President Assad's uh, approach to this drought. Uh, but as a result of that, five million people um, essentially exited, and you've seen what's happened in Europe. And that's a grave concern to us. If other countries are destabilized as the result of climate change impacts, what does that mean for the United States? So President Obama signed another executive order that requires all of our development work to be screened for climate resilience, to make sure that if we're going to decide to invest in a country overseas, that investment will last for the projected impacts that over the life of the project. That uh, executive order still is standing. President Trump has not decided to rescind that. As of yet. <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah. so if, you take, if you take some of those ideas, you know, that idea of the climate impact and the consistency or the persistence of impact. Amir, one of the things that's been interesting in some of the research that you've done has been looking what happens to poverty rates after a storm or after a hurricane. Help us understand what this looks like even in the U.S. There's an event that is related to climate, certainly not directly attributable, but in line with projections, and a neighborhood, a community is hit by a hurricane. What happens? So we've looked at the, the effects on effectively national economic growth after a, after a hurricane. Um, there was this view within academic economics that what, what should be happening is places build back better. So a, a hurricane comes in and knocks down a bunch of old redundant factories and you build new bright shiny ones that are more productive. And that's something which um, to some extent you do observe on a, on a very local scale. You could look at, at Houston over the course of the next decade and probably see uh, a lot of extra growth and, and the, the city bouncing back. But what we decided to do was look very broadly. So um, there's a situation where federal funding goes towards rebuilding, and it rightly goes towards rebuilding and recovery in, in a situation, in a post-disaster situation. But where does that money come from? Or what could it have been doing in the absence of that disaster? And so when we look at all of these things on net for every country in the world, rich and poor alike, you start to see that, um, you start to see that economic growth declines. And it doesn't really recover even after 20 or 30 years. And it's this very slow decline because the investments are not being made in other places. You might think, well, is this, a, is this something happening in a poorer country? Is this happening in the US? There's many reasons why this, so it's something which, which holds for the US as well. Um, and there's a lot of different mechanisms that might, that might be making that happen. One which I think is particularly compelling is a um, piece of research done by, by a, 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 a colleague at, at, at Urbana-Champaign, um, looking at the effect of hurricane strikes in, on the Atlantic coast of the US on unemployment insurance receipts. And it finds that the direct recovery costs are dwarfed by what's being paid for a decade later in unemployment insurance, mm -hmm. by a factor of 10. 
And so this is something which is increasing this drain on the economy. These, and in that case, it's definitely a, it's as a result of inequalities, as a result of people who are, they might not look like they're losing the most because they're not losing their, their big mansion, which in many cases is insured, but they're losing their job because they can't show up for a week, someone in their family gets sick. So kind of smaller, less noticeable impacts, but they're the things which cumulatively are adding up to extremely large costs. You know, within this, there were, essentially, there's an, your analysis is essentially looking at poverty over time, and it's looking at different parts of the U.S., and my recollection is that not only is this a question of what's happening in specific counties, if you take that macro level and you look at the U.S. overall, it's actually different in different parts of the country, the South versus the North versus the West versus the East. Help us, under, help us understand the geography. What does it look like for the U.S. as a whole, and why are different parts of the U.S. differently impacted? So it goes back to one of those things I was saying earlier. There's places that are very close to these damaging thresholds. So in large swaths of the southern United States, um, health costs are, are one of the biggest contributors that we found to climate change um, costs or climate change damages. And a lot of the southern states are, are nudging up right against these damaging health thresholds. And so if we look at a business-as-usual trajectory going forward over the next 100 years, they're increasingly having days of damaging heat waves. Um, there's many adaptations that, that people can, can adopt for that. So air conditioning is extremely uh, protective against, it. In, in a way, it solves a lot of the, the heat-damaging problems of climate change, but it's also expensive and it costs a lot to run. And when you're in a situation where, this is a, a statistic which I heard yesterday, of 17% of households in the United States spend 10% of their incomes on electricity, they're operating on very fine margins, and spending more and more on, on air conditioning is one of those things which could confer a large benefit. It would also exacerbate climate change because of the extra use of energy if we stay on a fossil fuel system, but something which not a lot of people will be able to afford. So that's one of those reasons you're looking at places which are already on average slightly poorer, mm -hmm. who are being exposed to, uh, who are right up against these thresholds where, th where climate change starts to make the environment that we live in become much more damaging. Yeah, so this is the context which the federal government is thinking through its opportunities and its actions. And uh, Alice, when you were looking at that, obviously you had an extraordinary purview both at the Department of Homeland Security and then in the White House. And I'd be curious to know, what are some of the ideas that started to come through in terms of specific pathways that help reduce the impacts that we're starting to talk about? Most importantly, we want to look at what investments we make now and make sure that they're resilient. So I'm sure all of you have heard and you experience it here in the United States, our infrastructure needs uh, a lot of investment. And if you're going to uh, spend money on a bridge, a tunnel, uh, a road, whatever it is, you should look at the service life for that particular piece of infrastructure. And in many instances, it may last for well over 100 years. And if you're looking at a 100-year investment, uh, I'll just give Washington, D.C. We hear a lot about the sewers of Washington, D.C. Ironically, the sewers in Washington, D.C., many of them were constructed in uh, 
pre-Civil War or during the Civil War, and those are still in place. So kudos to the folks that assembled that, that we can still, they can still handle the extreme uh, uh, um, waste that has to go out. Um, but we have a challenge with extreme precipitation that, that we're gonna have to change our pipes over time. We need to make sure we think about building those bigger culverts. These are the type of things. So after a hurricane, many of our culverts are washed out from flooding. Under even our current standards, we just build back what's there. And we already know that culvert couldn't handle the water that came down in the flood event. It's something like the, the, the savings if you spend, uh, it's 600 to one. For every dollar you spend, you get a 600 uh, percent return on reduced maintenance costs, on flow of water, uh, for expanding the size of your culvert. Uh, similarly, if uh, our studies show that if you spend one dollar to reduce your risk in advance of an event, you save four dollars in these recovery dollars when you're going back and having to rebuild. If we had built it better to begin with, we would have less, fewer damages. That's not our current model. There are a whole host of reasons, including political will, why that doesn't occur. Uh, we have looked at politicians' terms. Uh, you may have heard this expression, N-I-M-T, not in my term. So for the average politician, it's hard to say, you know, I want to spend a million here to mitigate risk that we're not really sure when it's going to arrive, how it's going to arrive, and probably won't arrive in my term versus 100 million on good schools, crime, fighting terrorism that they think their constituents are more interested in. So we find that uh, typically, as we are seeing right now, we spend much more on the recovery. That's what we did in Sandy. We attempted to do some things better after Sandy. And we'll also see very significant bailouts from the federal government to take care of the most recent events. The goal would be to push it from recovery to really uh, pre-event uh, pre mitigation of risk. That just saves us all money and keeps us more economically strong because the hit to the economy is less if your uh, buildings can withstand the damage that we know are from high winds, flooding, uh, and things like relentless sea level rise. In many, we just built a beautiful new bridge uh, in California uh, after the Loma Prieto earthquake, $8 billion bridge. They did not account for sea level rise in the planning of the bridge. So right as you enter that bridge on the toll booth, they already need $17 million worth of flood mitigation. We need to be thinking about that before we make major investments. What's it going to look like as we see these impacts come in? Yeah, you had this great line, I think, the other day, and it was, we build to withstand the risks of the past. Yes. And the risks of the future look a little different these days. Well, that's the, uh, just if I could say, that is yeah. probably the, the major challenge with climate change. All of our building codes, all of our building practices, when you're thinking about infrastructure, are based at looking at historic risk. How often did this property flood? How often did we experience high winds? And how high did the temperatures ever get? I don't know how many of you watched uh, the Dodger, uh, the World Series at the Dodger Stadium. Well, if you saw the scoreboard, it said it was 10 degrees. 
That's because they didn't have another digit to say 110 degrees. And that just reflects the assumptions underlying all of our, who would ever need to have a third digit there? Well, now we will routinely in Los Angeles. So, but that is a complete mind uh, shift in our mindset. Our, none of our building codes systematically incorporate future risk. None of our flood maps incorporate future risk. We are sitting, planning, building to what happened in the past, even though we have great examples given to us even this year on what our future looks like. But it's a complete change of thinking requiring many, many uh, participants, engineers, architects, city planners, urban planners, um, insurers probably are more on top of this than uh, many, uh, and uh, policymakers generally to understand that historic risk can inform the future, but you also need to look at something that we've never done before. Mm -hmm. what are, how do we plan for something we've never experienced before? Yeah. And so that, that look ahead, you know, those questions of what are the beginnings of some of those decisions that might be made differently? I mean, there's one, there are many historical examples already, but one is you know, Hurricane Andrew. And if you would mind talking a little bit about Hurricane Andrew was an extraordinary event, but there was a change made afterwards to think about what those impacts were. I'd love to use that as a starting point to think of where do we see some of these forward-looking approaches? In uh, 1992, Hurricane Andrew uh, hit Florida. It packed uh, some of the, I think it was Category 5 when it hit, uh, about 165 mile per hour winds. Uh, and there were, was very significant damages uh, to homes. Um, uh, over 100,000 homes uh, significantly either destroyed or, or impaired. Uh, and we learned from that that we weren't enforcing our building codes very well in Florida and that also uh, the building codes weren't strong enough. So the state of Florida essentially said never again. Uh, we're going to do this better. It took them a while, but uh, in 2002, I believe, they put in uh, one of the strongest building codes ever, uh, particularly for wind. And then in 2004, I believe, uh, Hurricane Charlie plus three other, Janine, uh, I've forgotten the other names, came in. Uh, and it was a perfect example because you had the newly constructed homes that were constructed to this very strong building standard and then all of course the existing stock that had not been retrofitted. The new homes did extremely well. So Florida had kept, has kept that building code in place ironically till just this year. Florida decided we're going to begin to backtrack from having the most uh, 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 the highest standards in our building codes. And that's something that is uh, a grave risk because all of us naturally make our decisions based on what we've experienced in the past. And Florida had not experienced a significant event for quite a while, so it begins to feel like I don't really need that. We see the same thing with insurance. After an event, people go out and get insurance, even though the likelihood of the event hasn't necessarily increased because you've experienced it, but it's you recently, you remember it, it's availability. Uh, but then over time, people drop their insurance uh, and they become vulnerable again. So there's a lot of behavioral uh, economics or social science work that we need to do to understand to help how we can better nudge all each of us to make better risk 
decisions when it comes to something like, do we keep the insurance on our home? Just to, to add slightly to that, so the, the Chicago heat wave, which you mentioned earlier, was another one of these sea changes in, in dealing with heat, and so it was the advent of um, coordinated cooling centers and other incredibly beneficial um, policies that now have spread across the whole country and to, to other parts of the world as well. Um, it seems like the it's on the back of these very dramatic incidents that we start to learn and it, it galvanizes policy to some extent. One can only hope that the the current, the summer, the hurricanes this, this summer will the, and the strain that FEMA is under will, will start to shine more of a light on it. But if it doesn't fall within the right policy context, it seems like it's, uh, it's going to be Well, beneficial. I would just say one challenge we have is, uh, as I mentioned, our building codes don't yet incorporate future risk. So all of us want to build back better. That makes just sense. But honestly, uh, we don't really always know how to build back better. And so for the politicians who need to get their communities back up and running, uh, there's tremendous pressure just to put it back as it was. And people, uh, through the emotional trauma of that kind of event, we see a lot of demand uh, naturally for people. I want to just put my home right where it was. I don't want to be told that I need to move back further or that I need to elevate it. I just want to get back into my house as it was. Uh, and so there's a lot of pressure. And then when we don't have a, a good you know, thing that we can take off the shelf and say, well, if you just built it this way, you would be safe. We aren't that prepared yet. Uh, so we're still in this area where when these big events occur, there'll be tremendous pressure just to put it back as it was. Uh, and so you're hopeful that communities do what Florida did, but it took them, it didn't happen in 1993, it took them about eight years to get to a higher building standard. So we'll see a lot put back in Puerto Rico uh, and other places uh, just as it was. I will say Houston has said they want to do a lot of buyouts of homes, which would be an excellent thing to just move people out of the floodplains so they're not going to have repetitive flooding there. You know, I mean, when you brought up Chicago and when you think about the, the, the devastation that this city experienced in that heat wave in 1995 and the many kind of solution pieces that emerged from that, and you talked about the cooling centers as one, well, one that became standard in Chicago was essentially white roofs, mm -hmm. uh, which helps to protect the inhabitants inside who may be inside if they're not in a cooling center. And I think that's moved around the world as well, and I'd love to know if you've got experience with any technology like that that might have it's a very leading, leading question. So I'm, Slightly I'm, I'm leading the witness. With the, with the, um, the University of Chicago Urban Labs, I'm working on a project in Delhi at the moment. So the, one of the interesting things that comes up is, do we know how to build back better? Do we know how to incorporate future risks? Maybe not yet in a policy sense, but in the science is there for us to do that. Um, Absolutely. The, the <laughs> political and, and the, the, the political will is maybe not there to incorporate it, but the science is, is quite good and, and is able to quantify the uncertainty and other things. When looking at that, when seeing what those, these impacts are, um, it makes sense to try and think of, without a, a large-scale, enormous infrastructure change in some of the more vulnerable places, so Delhi and in, in the one in particular where, where we're working, um, What's a low-cost way to, to decrease some of these impacts? And again, coming back to the, the point of, of inequality that I mentioned earlier, when it's particularly the poorest people 
who are more exposed, who are suffering from, from those impacts more. What is a low-cost way that you can protect or, or improve the, the, the well-being of people there? So what we're doing at the moment is we're trialing a, a, a project of effectively white roofs across a, a resettlement colony. So former slum dwellers in Delhi moved to this um, one location. And they're experiencing, I'm from Europe, so I'm going to say this in, in, in Celsius terms, but they're experiencing 45 degrees Celsius days. That's 100 and something, 110, 115. Um, I was actually out there in, in May during the hottest time of year, and the, the weather reports for the week that I was there was, I think, 116 degrees every single day. Um, and while I go out and go to this community and go back to my air-conditioned car and, and drink some water, people are stuck in that constantly and have to work, have to go to school, people are getting sick from dehydration. And so we think the benefits there could be enormous if this technology um, can actually help them in that way. Um, so there's lots of solutions that we're trying to trial. This is not a place where air conditioning would be, would be particularly accessible. So what do you do when the, when the resource constraint is more binding? Will you find the low cost way that might help people to some extent that then it doesn't interrupt their, their livelihood? So they can make that money and eventually invest in, in better infrastructure themselves. So try and decrease the impacts um, on their own ability to adapt long enough for them to grow into a place where they're, they're less vulnerable. Yeah. And Alice, what else gives you opportunities to think of here are the ways things are working or they could work? There are, there are examples of impacts. The, the example of Hurricane Andrew and building codes is one. What are the other things that you look at and you say, listen, it's working there, it's a scale opportunity for us? One of the more inspiring uh, stories I recently heard uh, was from a, a friend who's from Bangladesh. Uh, and Bangladesh has terrible flooding, it or it's, uh, as we've talked, very impoverished country. And uh, this uh, spring, uh, Asia was terribly hit uh, with flooding. Bangladesh, uh, 8 million people were flooded. Historically, and this will be a greater risk for all of us, we saw with Houston's floodwaters, people uh, had developed skin disease from being in the floodwaters, um, and uh, they had a lot of health impacts as a result of having to wade through. Bangladesh has taken on the public health threat posed by routine flooding uh, and in this past, very serious floods they experienced, there were no virtually no cholera cases because they uh, had tremendous messaging that you need to have good hygiene. So as it was described to me, even people who are wading through chest-deep waters knew that they couldn't ingest those waters and that as soon as they were out there, out of there, they needed to practice good hygiene. They had saline solution, oral saline available for their children. They had public health workers going out to visit the displaced families to make sure that those families remained healthy. And uh, according to their public health reports, they had virtually no deaths as a result of this kind of uh, diarrheal diseases uh, following a flood. Very low cost. It's really a public messaging and making sure that fresh water is available, but hugely exciting to think that an impoverished nation can take on a critical risk, plan for it, it's, uh, and when the bad thing happens, know what to do and make sure that their population is protected. So 
We've had a chance today to really talk about climate change and inequality, and I really appreciate you two bringing your very specific perspectives and helping us shape this broader conversation. And to that last question, we're actually having this conversation here while the leaders of the world are meeting at COP in Bonn to address climate and look specifically both at the emissions and then what we need to do. So there's a, a huge backdrop of global engagement as we have this very specific conversation here in Chicago. So I want to thank our panelists and thank our audience. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank you all. Thanks for listening into our event. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.